One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast contains graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. True North True Crime is produced on the territories of the Coast Salish people. Representing less than 0.2% of all violent crimes in Canada, homicides account for a fraction of all police-reported violent offenses. While homicide continues to be a relatively rare occurrence in Canada, those families impacted by murder are sent reeling in its aftermath. Knowing that your loved ones suffered such violence at the hands of another can be too much to bear. When that murder remains unsolved and unpunished, the same pain grows exponentially. In 2007, a 46-year-old woman arrived at a party around 2 a.m. At 8.30 a.m., she was discovered dead in a bedroom. Years later, no one has been held responsible for her death. But her family continues to fight for answers. Tonight we present the murder of Charlene Ward. And this is True North True Crime. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us at True North True Crime. Whether you're a longtime listener or brand new, thanks for being here. If you're looking for more of our content, you can subscribe to TNTC Plus on Apple Podcasts or over on Patreon. For $5 a month, you'll have access to exclusive content, early access to our regular feed episodes, and all of our episodes will be ad-free. If you have a case suggestion for us, please don't hesitate to contact us at truenorthtruecrime at gmail.com. While we prioritize cases brought to us by family members or close contacts, we welcome suggestions from all of our listeners. So with that, let's get into tonight's case. On this episode of True North True Crime, we will be covering the unsolved 2007 homicide of Charlene Ward out of Portage La Prairie, Manitoba. This case was suggested to us by a listener by the name of Heather, who actually sent us three different cases out of Portage La Prairie. So hello, Heather. Thank you for your email. For this episode, we were lucky enough to work alongside the family of Charlene Ward to create this episode. And first and foremost, we want to extend a massive thank you to Sherry, Charlene's daughter, for introducing us to many members of the family who you will hear throughout this episode. For the first time in our podcast history, we got to do a Zoom call with multiple family members present, which was super informative. 
This episode was also created using publicly available news articles, court documents, as well as statements from Charlene's family members, whom we will introduce to you now. Sherry is Charlene's daughter, and she was our first point of contact and did a fantastic job of getting more family members organized to take part in the interview. We got to meet three of Charlene's siblings, Donna, Bobby, and Debbie. Also present was Debbie's daughter, Shereem, who was Charlene's niece. We will include all of their voices in this episode as we feel it's of utmost importance to platform their voices when discussing Charlene's case. Now, when our listener Heather emailed us with this case suggestion, we mentioned that she sent three unsolved homicide cases out of Portage La Prairie, with Charlene's being one of them. Heather suggested in this email that Portage might just be a great place to get away with murder, a sentiment that Charlene's family shared when we mentioned it to them over our meeting. We did reach out to the Manitoba RCMP for comment on Charlene's case, but did not receive a reply via phone call or by email. So with that, let's get to know a bit about Portage La Prairie, Manitoba. Portage La Prairie, or Portage, as Charlene's family called it, is a small city in Manitoba. As of 2016, the population of Portage sits somewhere around 13,000 people. The demographics of the region are predominantly white and indigenous. Situated along the Trans-Canada Highway, about 75 kilometers west of Winnipeg, Portage La Prairie is positioned precisely halfway between the provincial borders of Saskatchewan and Ontario. The city is nestled on the banks of the Assiniboine River, which used to cause frequent flooding until construction of the Portage Diversion, a northward channel that redirects floodwaters towards Lake Manitoba. A fun fact about Portage La Prairie is that It has the most sunny days during the warm weather months of anywhere in Canada. So if you're a summer sun lover, you might want to consider Portage as your next vacation stop. The term Portage la Prairie was possibly coined by early explorers and originates from the French word to portage, which refers to carrying a canoe overland between bodies of water. Now, according to areavibes.com, Portage la Prairie has a bit of a crime problem. Portage has a 279% higher crime rate than the national average, with a violent crime rate 323% higher than the national average. A simple Google search brings up articles from January of 2023 that speak about Portage La Prairie residents and business owners being fed up with the increase in crime and the lack of, or the seeming lack of consequences to those who commit crime. We're sure many Canadians across the country can relate to this issue as increased crime and the catch and release approach have been making headlines as of late. Here's a quote from a Winnipeg Sun article written by Dave Baxter titled, quote, No repercussions. Brazen criminals in Portage have no fear, says business owner. The article goes on to say, The business owner said he does not believe the RCMP in the province have enough power or resources to seek theft and robbery suspects after an incident has occurred. And he does not believe that the justice system is doing enough to keep those who have been arrested for crimes behind bars. The business owner states, Even when they are arrested, they are often out on bail the next day. I have completely lost faith in the system. Now, we've spoken to many people across the country who share similar sentiments to the business owner that was interviewed for that article, and Charlene Ward's family happens to be among those people. In fact, when we ask them what our listeners can do to help, as we always do at the end of our episodes, we like to put in a call to action, they stated that one of the things that 
we could do to help them is to lobby governments to be stronger on people who commit crime, specifically violent crime. All right, so with that, it's time we introduce you all to Charlene Ward. In 2007, Charlene was a 46-year-old woman living in Portage La Prairie, and she had two daughters, Sherry and Brittany. She was born on July 1st, 1961, and would joke that all the fireworks on Canada Day were for her. Charlene was brought up in the country, and the family didn't have a lot of money. Here's her sister Donna with more details of their early life. We lived out in the country, um, in the Gainesboro area. We weren't rich by any means, so we just kind of like hung out outside lots and hung around with friends and... We didn't um, have friends. And then, uh, yeah, Charlene. Charlene was the middle child, so she was, uh, yeah, she got me into trouble lots. <laughs> She'd sneak me out of the house in the middle of the night. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Our dad was a bricklayer, and he did that right from the age of 12 right till he was 79, so when he quit. But uh, my mom... She helped him for the first few years bricklaying, and then she was just basically a stay-at-home. The family also shared a funny story about how they had to get a nanny goat, as Charlene could not have regular milk, so her brother Bobby had to milk the goat, and her siblings would lightheartedly make fun of Charlene because of this. She had a hard time gaining weight when she was young, so her nickname was Skinny or Bony Maroney. Donna shared with us that Charlene ended up leaving school around grade nine. She just didn't like school very much. Charlene got pregnant at 19 and had Sherry when she was 20 years old. As Charlene grew into adulthood, she met a man whom we will refer to as Jason. The two dated for years before finally getting married, and the two would go on to have a daughter together when Charlene was 26 and Sherry was five and a half. This daughter was Brittany. Sherry describes her mother as a hard worker, but she did jump around from job to job quite often, but she favored Tim Hortons and a local farm called Mayfair Farms. Here's Charlene's daughter, Sherry, with more. Well, my mom had many jobs, like many, many jobs. She worked at Tim Hortons, she worked at Connery Farms, she worked at Mayfair Farms, she worked at Tim Hortons again, whatever the old Campbell Soup place was. It was like some kind of textile place. I don't know. She... They never had trouble finding a job, but she didn't keep it for very long. Her and Jay would break up. She would kind of stop working and then go on welfare for a little bit, and then they'd get back together, and then she'd go and find a job. Like, she is, she, for the longest time, even when she was between jobs, she was always looking for a job. So it's, it's not like she just sat around and did nothing. She was, she was a hard worker. Always, always, we, we always had food and clothing and shelter and that's like more than some people so I appreciate that. Like many Canadians, Charlene struggled with substance misuse on and off in her life. We asked Sherry to touch on that for us. She was an alcoholic. She fought that for years. She went into a dry out center and came out and then I think she did that twice. Dry out center twice. Second time it kind of took for a while but I was talking to Donna about, or, or Debbie or somebody, I can't remember, um, about like some of the questions you'd asked. And, and I said to, to them, like, should I say this? Because like, I don't know if it's going to paint her in a bad light. But like, I lived, I lived with grandma and grandpa because 
when my mom moved out, Brittany was just born or like a year. Because I remember being on the farm, going to kindergarten. And then in grade one, I was in the city. And then I didn't like living with my mom because I missed my grandma and grandpa. So I kind of was back and forth between the two. But my sister was always there. But my my grandma drank and my mom drank. And like, I'm not ashamed of that. Like, that's where I've learned what not to do. <laughs> um, but like, I distinctly remember when my sister was small, she was three or four. And like my mom was already with Jay. She lived on Royal Road in this tiny little house. And they were, they had like a party or something. My mom passed out in the backyard and my sister went and slept with her. And um, because I was staying with my grandma and grandpa, like I didn't, I wasn't there when that happened. I was there the next day. Uh, I didn't get taken away, but my sister did from CFS. So, and then that's when my mom started the, um, dry out centers because she knew she had a problem. And then I think the second time Brittany was seven when she went in and then it was better after that. Like she didn't, like she still drank, but she didn't drink to get blackout drunk after that. So she did learn. So just to recap a little bit here, Sherry lived primarily with her grandparents up until the age of 12 while Brittany lived with Charlene full time until Child and Family Services of Manitoba stepped in due to an incident where Charlene fell asleep on the lawn outside, at which point Brittany was placed in foster care. Now, the foster home ended up being um, friends of the family, so that worked out nicely in terms of Charlene being able to have a connection with her daughter Brittany during that time. Now, before we move on, we just want to comment here, as longtime listeners of the podcast, you know that we don't judge the victims or the family members affected by crime. There is no perfect victim. Many Canadians struggle with alcohol, drug use, mental health challenges, and financial insecurity. I myself am sober, and I often wonder what people would say about me if I had gone missing or been murdered before I had a chance to change. We believe that no matter what a person's life's choices are, they do not deserve to go missing or become the victim of a murder. No one should be judged by their worst day or year or even decade. People change. Now we're going to move on to what Charlene's day-to-day life was like in 2007. Here's what Sherry had to say. She worked at Tim Hortons. She was dating a guy named... They lived... They lived out in Westburn for a little while. And like, she, I know she was going back and forth to work from there. And then they ended up breaking up in, I'm pretty sure it was September. Yeah. She just had moved out. Like they were, you know, not together, but not separated. Does that make sense? <laughs> you know, kind of still seeing each other, I guess. His, his place burnt down. I'm pretty sure that's why she ended up coming back to Portage. She lost um, her cats in that fire. But she worked She worked at Tim Hortons, and then she was uh, in between my house, my sister's house, visiting. Like, just a couple weeks before she passed away, she was at my house making buns and cinnamon buns and stuff like that for the kids. That was fun. That was nice. She used to feed all the little kids around the neighborhood. <laughs> So Charlene was uh, on again, off again with a guy, and as a result of that and a house fire, um, she was looking for 
temporary places to stay. That included staying with her niece, Shereem, for a period of time. So in October of 2007, just three weeks before her homicide, Charlene had moved in with her now adult daughter, Brittany, in Brittany's two-story home in Portage La Prairie. Charlene had moved in with her daughter because Brittany had just recently given birth to a new baby, so Charlene wanted to be around to help her daughter out. We wanted to know what the family knew about the hours leading up to the murder that would occur on November 1st, 2007. Here's Sherry with more. She phoned me at quarter to 12, um, a quarter to midnight, and she said, guess where I am? And I was like, where? She said, I'm in the bathroom. I was like, oh, that's nice. She's like, at work. And I was like, well, how come you're still at work? She was supposed to work till 11. She worked 3 to 11 that night. And she said somebody wasn't coming to work. She had to work a double. It, and I was like, oh, that kind of sucks. And she just wanted to know what I was doing. And then she was laughing because she's like, I'm doing three things at once. I'm peeing, talking on the phone, and working drive. I was like, oh, okay, cool. But um, she did end up getting off at like quarter after 12 because somebody else showed up to work. And that's when she went to the bar with Brittany and the other co-workers. And she was there until two when the bar closed. And they took a party back to the house. I don't know how many people were there, but there was a lot. There was a lot of people there. So to clarify, Charlene was scheduled to work a shift at Tim Hortons from 3 p.m. until 11 p.m. But a co-worker called in sick, which ended up extending Charlene's shift until roughly 12.15 a.m. At this point, she headed to a local nightclub called The Cat and Fiddle with her daughter Brittany, as well as some friends and co-workers. Charlene was driven to the nightclub by a family friend named Jimmy, who was also a taxi driver. The family did share that Jimmy had been interviewed by the police, which was likely just to get an idea of who Charlene was with and what the overall mood of the evening was. Sherry shared that Charlene and the group she was with at the nightclub that night were there until the club closed at 2 a.m., at which point a decision was made to keep the party going, so they invited people to come back to Brittany's house. Now, while an official count of people who were at this party isn't readily available, Sherry told us that she believes that over 40 people were present at Brittany's house in the early morning hours of November 1st, 2007. And anyone who's been to a house party knows that people are kind of coming and going all night. But by the time the sun was coming up at around 8 a.m., only about five people were still loitering around as the party had begun to wind down. Among the people present was Charlene's youngest daughter, Brittany, who would end up making the horrific discovery of her mother's body in an upstairs bedroom at around 8.45 a.m. Thanks for listening to this week's sponsors whose support enables us to keep producing this podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we are back. So before the break, we outlined the life of Charlene Ward. Charlene grew up with a large family in Portage La Prairie. When she became an adult, she had two daughters. First, there was Sherry, and then there was Brittany. Charlene worked intermittently at Tim Hortons and other local spots. Charlene did struggle on and off with alcohol use and occasional drug use. There are times when Charlene was winning that battle um, with alcohol misuse and times when she was less successful. So in the fall of 2007, 46-year-old Charlene Ward was living with her daughter, Brittany, in the city of Portage La Prairie. Charlene had worked a shift at Tim Hortons that day and into the evening before deciding to go out to a local nightclub with her daughter as well as a group of friends and co-workers. Once the club closed at 2 a.m., the group wanted to keep the night going, so they moved the party back to Brittany's two-story home on Fifth Avenue in Portage La Prairie. It's said that over 40 people were in attendance at the home throughout the night, which no doubt made the investigation all the more complicated. Not only do you have a transient group of people who are coming and going throughout the night of the party, but you have alcohol and drug use on top of that, making people's recollections of what happened that evening potentially um, less accurate. You also have to think about all of the forensic evidence that would be left by dozens of people that were present throughout the night, fingerprints, DNA. There would just be an overwhelming amount of mess to filter through. Anyone who's ever been to a house party knows how messy things can get. So as things began to peter out around 8 o'clock in the morning, Charlene's daughter Brittany found her mother in a pool of blood in one of the bedrooms around 8.45 a.m., While we don't have Brittany's account of that morning, we do have Sherry's testimony. So here is Sherry. At 10 to 8 in the morning, Jamie, who was Brittany's boyfriend at the time, was leaving to go to work. And he got picked up by a cab because he literally worked at the cab place. So, um, but between him and the other people that were left in the house, and those were the only people left with my mom after Jamie left at 10 to 8. And then the cops have said that they've cleared everybody in the house but my sister, which means the other three people all left together. Or two of them left together and one left before. Well, there was 47 minutes where there's nobody knows what happened. So as Sherry just said, it's not known what occurred between the time frame of 8 a.m. when the last of the party guests were leaving the home and 8.45 a.m. when Brittany found her mother's body. After Brittany found Charlene deceased, she called Sherry at 8.47 a.m. and said that their mother was hurt and Sherry needed to get over there. Brittany was at a neighbor's house calling, and it was the neighbor that called the police. My sister phoned me, and it was 8.47 in the morning. And she said, Mom was hurt, and I need to get over there. 
And I said, why? Like, how is she hurt? She's like, I don't know. She's, she's bleeding. There was a party. I need you to hurry up and come here. So I was like, okay, yeah, let's be, I'll be right there. I lived, I don't know, five blocks away. And like, Tamina was with me. She was four. She wasn't in school yet. I just threw a hand of candy in a bag and I literally grabbed Tamina by the hands. And I don't even think her feet hit the freaking ground when we were running. And Brittany phoned me back a second time when I was just about at the corner of her street. And she was like, you need to hurry. It's bad. Like there, there's blood and all this stuff. And like, you know, there's blood from her head or something. And uh, I said, well, fucking did you phone the cops? And she was like, no, but I will. And then she hung up the phone. She didn't phone the cops. She was at the neighbor's house because she didn't have a phone. So literally where it was, was I was coming down the street. My sister's house was here. Darcy's house was here. She was at Darcy's house. Darcy heard what Brittany was telling me, went and checked on my mom, saw what she looked like, wiped her face off because there was blood fucking everywhere. And literally she got into her house. Must like, I'm, I don't even know how I didn't see her, but like she got into her house and she phoned 30 seconds. My call, my call was 30 seconds. 30, three zero after Darcy's. And those were the first calls to 911. And like, they were going to Darcy's house, not Brittany's house. And I was telling them, no, it's like, it's like, cause she was like, well, we have another call. And I was like, well, it's, this is my mom. My mom, there's blood everywhere. I was like, like, it is bad. Like she was laying on the floor beside a dresser, almost in the doorway. And the way Brittany's house is situated, like she was on the second floor in the bedroom where Brittany was sleeping with Jamie and her kids was in the living room on a futon. Like, I didn't know until later, Brittany said she went to the bathroom with Mercedes and she didn't see my mom. I don't know how the fuck she didn't see my mom because I saw my mom. And there was, there was just so much blood. Like she was in a pool of blood. There was blood soaked all through the blankets that were half on the bed. There was a blood spotter all over the fucking walls, the back wall, the side wall. There was, it was just insane. Like when I saw her just with everything everywhere, I knew my mom was gone. I like, they said to the 911 operator said, is there anything impeding the way? And I said, yeah, I'm going to move two toy boxes. One's pink and one's blue. And I put them in Mercedes room and I went down the stairs like when we first ran in there, I sat Tamina down and I said, no matter what you hear, if you hear me yell, if you hear me cry, don't come, just stay right here. And she did. And I'm, thank God, I ran her outside and I told her to go to Darcy's because Darcy was outside by that time. And I said, you go over there. That's where Auntie is. And I, I stood in the fucking in the driveway and I cried <laughs> because I knew, I knew she, like there is no way. Like I didn't touch her or nothing because... I have watched so many of those stupid shows. You know, you're not supposed to do that. But like, it was the single most awful thing I have ever experienced or seen in my life. And like, when she was at the funeral home, I asked them not to put makeup on her. because so I wanted to see the details and what had happened. And she had um, defensive wounds all over her arms like she had little little stab wounds like the the knife was not that big 
but she had little like everywhere all over her arms she had them in her hand she had a great big gash here like she had a unicorn tattoo on her hand and it went halfway through her hand like halfway down that tattoo she had a great big gash right here over top her where her glasses would sit on down her cheek and right through her lip I couldn't find her glasses. That's the only thing I wanted for a funeral, but the cops wouldn't tell me if they had them or not. And I didn't see anything else. Like I didn't pay attention to the bathroom because that wasn't my priority. But no, I I knew I, as soon as I saw her and I don't understand why my sister didn't phone 911. Well, I do understand because if she's the one that did it, she didn't want to be caught, obviously. But that's... That's the image I live with when I think of my mom. <laughs> like, that's the first image I see. Her pink shirt, her blue jeans, and just blood everywhere. Like, everywhere. It was insane. We asked the other family members what they recall about the day that Charlene was found murdered. Here's what Donna had to say. I, it was like clockwork with her and myself, Donna. Um, she would phone me. When she was short money, she'd phone me and she just knew when my paydays were. So she'd phone me every t- every day on my payday and ask me to borrow 20 bucks. <laughs> 20 bucks. <laughs> That's why when she, the day she was murdered, she, when Sherry phoned me, I was on, I just got on my coffee break and they called me to the phone and said, somebody's on the phone for you. And I was like, oh my God, she's phoning me for money again. And then it was Sherry phoning me and telling me that somebody had murdered her mother. It was 9.33 a.m. I remember that specifically because I just stepped on my break. Charlene's niece, Shereen, was driving when she got the life-altering phone call from Donna. And she was so shocked by the news of her aunt's murder that she needed to pull over onto the side of the road as she simply couldn't begin to comprehend what she was being told. Donna shares more of her memories from the morning of November 1st, 2007. Sherry called me at work at 9.33, and then uh, I just, uh, I don't even think I touched any of the stairs going down from work. I just kind of jumped from the top to the bottom and ran to my car, and I raced over there, and uh, I met Sherry out in the the yard, and she was, uh, all I heard was her say, my mom's gone, and Donna, my mom's dead. And then I just, uh, I held her. It goes without saying that the family was left absolutely devastated and confused and with questions that they still don't have the answers to. Let's go ahead and discuss the investigation into Charlene Ward's homicide. Now, unfortunately, there isn't a lot of public information when it comes to the investigation work that was done in this case. But according to Charlene's family members, it is believed that everyone who was at the party has been spoken to by law enforcement and was subsequently cleared of any suspicion. Here's a quote from an article that was in the Winnipeg Free Press. An RCMP spokesman said in an email that the investigation continues to be an open and active file. Police said that they believe that Ward was killed sometime between 8 a.m. and 8.45 a.m. when her body was discovered. Police believe all partygoers have been identified and interviewed, the spokesperson added. 
So you'll notice there that it says that the police believe that they have identified all the party goers, which is interesting. Again, unfortunately, even though we did attempt to reach out to the RCMP via two different mediums, we received no reply. So on that morning, the RCMP arrived at the home to find Charlene deceased in a bedroom. The crime scene was quite horrific with blood spatter all up the walls in cast-off patterns. Charlene was lying in a pool of blood, and there was blood all over the bedding as though the attack had started on the bed and moved to the floor. The bedding was also pulled half off of the bed. It's unclear where on her body the fatal wound was, but we know that Charlene had defensive wounds all over her hands and arms. It's clear that whatever happened in that bedroom, it was very violent, and um, Charlene had attempted to defend herself. This attack could possibly have been quite noisy with furniture being hit and, you know, possibly some yelling going on, I would imagine. We did ask Sherry if a murder weapon was ever discovered, but she said that she wasn't aware of anything being found. So it is possible that the police are keeping that information close to their vest. Now, we want to give the police the benefit of the doubt here, but we'd be remiss if we didn't share that Charlene's family feels that the Portage La Prairie RCMP screwed this case up from Jump Street. So other than the partygoers being identified and interviewed, there's not a whole lot of other information readily available to go over in this case. However, to everyone's surprise, an arrest was made in connection to this case. In May of 2017, 10 years after the murder, Charlene's own daughter, Brittany Lake, was arrested. We asked Sherry to tell us what she knew about Brittany's arrest. When we went in to give our statements, they didn't take my sister's clothes. Yet she was the last person in the house with her. And like they just screwed up so badly. When they released the scene, there was still blood around. Like there was, um, and I know for a fact that some of those pictures that they took were blurry. So that like when I told them that there was still blood at the scene, when I was mad and I phoned the cops, they were like, oh, well, we're going to come and take more pictures. But the, the shit that they needed to take pictures of was wiped down properly. Like the smudges on the wall, apparently, that were like in the hallway going down the stairs, they needed better pictures of, but that's, that crap was clean. Um, like they, they fucked it up big time. Um, like they didn't arrest my sister for like, what was it, 10 years? And then they were hoping that she would confess. Like the way they said it to me was, they had everything in a nice box. They just needed to put the lid on it with a bow. Cross all their T's and dots, all their I's and blah, blah, blah. But I've seen like so many other cases go to court with less than what they have or what they say they have. But like they gave her four, four separate polygraph tests. And she always failed the same question. Did you kill your mom? Why did you hurt your mom? Did you have anything to do with her death? I can see once or twice, like my, the very first time my sister said it was inconclusive. And I believe that because we were really emotional and high on drugs. But uh, the other four times or the other three times, it doesn't make sense. To me. Now, spoiler alert. The day after Brittany was arrested in connection with her mother's murder, she was released without charges. The police simply didn't have enough evidence to charge Brittany, and in the family's opinion, they arrested her hoping that Brittany would confess. Generally speaking, after someone commits a crime, especially a murder, 
their behavior changes. So with that in mind, we asked Sherry what happened in the days, weeks, and months after their mother's murder. What did Brittany tell her family about what happened on the morning of November 1st, 2007? She always, she just would say, I think it was the kid. I can't remember his fucking name. But like, he, he, he lived two doors down and like, he, he was young, but he liked my mom. Like he tried to pick her up a couple times and she was like, no thanks, you know, but, uh, that was the only person she'd ever mentioned. And then like, I don't know, every time I'd ask her, she'd just be like, well, I don't remember. Or, you know, and, and she was, she told me she phoned 911. It wasn't Darcy. She told me, that they, but the cops told me, the cops were the ones that told me they were 30 seconds apart and Darcy phoned just, just before I did. So when the RCMP initially questioned Brittany Lake on the morning of November 1st, 2007, they unfortunately did not take her clothes into evidence. The police only collected her clothes that she had been wearing that morning after they had already been washed. So potentially a big misstep there in terms of forensic evidence being missed. We wanted a little bit more information in regards to Brittany Lake. What would her motive be for wanting her mother dead if she is indeed responsible? Before we share the family's thoughts on this, it's important to remind our listeners that Brittany has not been charged or found guilty of this crime. According to the principle of innocent until proven guilty, she is considered innocent unless a court of law determines otherwise. Here's Charlene's brother, Bobby, remembering an altercation between Brittany and Charlene about five years prior to Charlene's homicide. Uh, One party I was at with Charlene and the girl that I was going out with from... Alberta. We were at a party and Brittany wanted to get out. She wanted to go out. She was going out with Jamie. And her mom said, no, you can't go because you're grounded. And she looked at her mom and she said, you fucking bitch, I'll kill you someday. And I still remember that. I blame her right from day one. Sherry and Brittany had a very close relationship, but the relationship changed after Charlene was murdered. Sherry just always had a gut feeling that Brittany knew more than she was letting on. Here's Sherry talking about the relationship between Brittany and her mother, Charlene. They were like oil and water. My mom and my sister. Like they had times where they would get, like they would be really good together. But Brittany had, she had a tendency of flying off the handle. I don't know what the motive would be from that night. But like, I have definitely always said the simplest answer is usually the right answer. And... To me, it was her. And it was probably because my mom had got paid that day and they were doing coke and they were uh, drinking and Brittany probably wanted more. And my mom told her no. We asked the family if Brittany had had any previous run-ins with the law and they let us know that she had, which included assault, as well as an instance of a hit and run in a stolen vehicle. And in our research, we did come across a tweet from the Manitoba RCMP from October 31st, 2017, ironically being the 10-year anniversary of Charlene's murder. And this tweet states, Brittany Lake has been arrested thanks to a public tip. Her co-accused, Dana Popko of Portage La Prairie, is still at large. Info at, and then the phone number. This included Brittany's mugshot. However, no details of the crime were included in that tweet, but it is obvious that she is known to the RCMP. As we all know, rumor mills in small towns can run rampant. So we figured with a crime this disturbing occurring in Portage La Prairie, people would naturally be talking. 
We asked Charlene's family members if they remembered hearing anything uh, about any suspicious activity or fights that had happened on the night of Charlene's murder. And Shereem, Charlene's niece, had this to say. Uh, can I just say one thing, though? This is Shereem. Um, I worked at the Douglas Campbell when she was murdered, and uh, I knew a couple of people, and they had told me that they knew people that went to the party. And one rumor, like it's probably just a rumor, but one thing that was said was, that Brittany was waving a knife around that night at the party saying somebody's going to die. So Shereem just recounted this story of what she heard while she was working at the Douglas Campbell, which is a local medical clinic. In the story, Brittany was waving a knife earlier that night at the party or that early morning. Again, all of this information is just rumor at this point. But we know that whatever happened to Charlene happened in a 47-minute window in the morning hours of November 1st, 2007. There were only a handful of people who could have been present that morning, and we believe that there are people who have information that could help close this case and bring justice for Charlene and her family. We asked Sherry to elaborate on what she thinks happened on the morning of November 1st, 2007. I I honestly think she blacked out. Like, I remember before she said she thought she heard mom say like calling for help like and i thought about it for a long time would my mom fight back if it was me or Brittany? probably not she'd probably try to stop us right not like my mom was a fighter too like she'd fucking whoop your ass she didn't care that's where we got it from right like my mom was feisty and i had i thought long and hard about it and i'd like if it were me i don't think she'd try to fight back i think she'd try to defend herself like like just you know like what she was with marks that she had so i can definitely see my sister going flying off into a rage and then doing that because it doesn't take very long to inflict harm on somebody it really doesn't it could take you like a minute not even to to do the damage that was done to my mom if if you're fast enough and Brittany was fast so like like I said, I thought long and hard. Like I, I went through here and I went through there and brought all the processes together. And that's what I come up with. It's been 16 years since Charlene Ward was murdered in her daughter's home in Portage La Prairie. And unfortunately, authorities do not seem to be any closer to solving this case than they were the morning Sherry received the call from her sister that their mother was bleeding and she needed to come over. After Brittany's arrest and release the very next day, the case is seemingly at a standstill. In 2022, the RCMP stated the following to Global News. In an interview this week, Sergeant Jana Amaral from the RCMP's Major Crime Services said Ward's killing remains an open homicide case. While Amaralt couldn't speak to the specifics of the ongoing case, including why the woman wasn't charged, she said that just because a person is released from custody doesn't mean they're no longer considered a suspect. Quote, is she no longer a suspect? No, that doesn't mean that at all. Lots of times, we can have enough information to proceed with an arrest and be able to speak to somebody in relation to an investigation, but we won't necessarily have enough evidence to proceed with charges. That's something we have to do in order to further try to further an investigation. The RCMP classify the case as open and ongoing. They say they are still actively working on it, but it has now been classified as a historical case. If you're listening to this episode and have any information at all about Charlene Ward's homicide, 
it's time for you to come forward. You can make an anonymous report with Crime Stoppers by calling 1-800-222-8477 or visiting the Crime Stoppers website. A family has been shattered due to someone's actions on the morning of November 1st, 2007, and you can help lessen their suffering by sharing any information you have, big or small, anything helps. We asked the family if they had a plea to the person responsible or to those who have information that they've yet to share. To the person, I think they're a coward. I think that karma is very real. And I'm pretty sure that if it's the person that I blame, that she's getting her karma every day. And that's how karma works. You made my life miserable, now it's making your life miserable. Here's Debbie and Bobby sharing their experiences for what they observed in the days and weeks after the murder. This is Debbie. This is the oldest one. I wasn't here when that all happened. I lived in New Brunswick, so I was away from home for quite a while. I got the call. Uh, the first plane I could get out, I got here. I arrived either 1.30 or 2 o'clock a.m. My sister and my daughter picked me up, Shereen. Uh, They asked me where I wanted to go. And the first place I said, I said, I want to go see Sherry and I want to go see Brittany. I walked into Sherry's house. Sherry's house. And Sherry was upset. I went running to her and she hugged me and started crying. Then I went up to Brittany and I wanted a hug from her. There was nothing. Brittany was cold. She was cold as ever. There was no motion, no nothing, no crying. You know, it just, it surprised me. And that she was cold even the day that her mother got murdered. Yeah, because I pulled up in Donna's driveway. She was standing outside smoking a joint, and I—it's just like absolutely nothing happened. If you look in her eyes, you don't see anything. It's like black. It's—I I can't describe it. Like there's no emotion there whatsoever. And with all the functions that we've had for Charlene. Nothing. Brittany has not showed up to one. That's what I was going to say, too. Part of what makes working with a victim's family members so meaningful is to be able to share their voices with you. This provides them with an opportunity to speak from their hearts and in their own words. We think that this is the most genuine way for listeners to be able to connect with them. So with that, we wanted to share some of their responses when we asked how Charlene's murder has impacted them and their families. It's hard. Really hard. Me and Charlene were really close. It's very hard coming back to Portage. I moved back to Portage when my dad got sick. So I've been back here now for... 10 years and uh, I'm a widow so I'm by myself so I spend a lot of time at the graveyard and I go see my husband always go see my sister every day my dad and that mom brother mom dad brother we lost a brother too so we lost the baby of the family and that so and he was really close to Charlene too very close so we're close family now there's only four of us left and it's hard. I just find it hard because I do a lot of the what ifs because she lived with me three weeks before. And, you know, what if I would have asked her to stay or if she would have stayed, you know, but then I think, you know, she probably still would have went out that night after work and 
because there was no talking Charlena to anything when she was bound and determined. I miss our talks. She always had my back. If somebody was picking on me, she'd go and tune them up. <laughs> well, how it changed me was uh, I used to care about people. Now, not so much. I don't trust anybody. I kind of feel that I'm more uh, disengaged from people. And actually, um, my son just told me this past year that because uh, uh, he got into the day it happened, I picked him up, went and picked him up from school and he was pretty upset too. And uh, well, after that year, everything spiraled for him too. He got into the drugs, he got into drinking. So he's an alcoholic, but he's been off off everything well he has a, an odd drink now because he he took a whole year off of drinking and that and he cleared his head and then he told me that a big portion of why he started drinking and doing drugs so heavily was because it really fucked him up sadly donna's son wasn't the only family member impacted by substance misuse after charlene's homicide Sherry is also very open about her struggles with drugs and alcohol, which only escalated in the immediate aftermath of her mother being murdered. Today, Sherry is 13 years sober. I struggle with mental health issues. I was depressed for a long time. I had extreme anxiety. So much so that sometimes I have panic attacks and I can't go anywhere. Um... I have extreme trust issues. I trust nobody. I feel like I, I feel very alone. Like I used to have a good relationship with my sister and I don't have that anymore. I don't have a mom for guidance. I don't have a lot of things. I feel like my kids were robbed. China is the only one that really remembers my mom. She's my oldest. And she was only eight when my mom died. Um, so I feel like their experiences with my mom were taken away because someone was a fucking prick. Like, I know I have other family and stuff, but it's different when you talk to your siblings and when you talk to your parents. You can't always have that level of trust and honesty and just you know but I try but it's just sometimes not there I feel broken because my family was ripped apart I felt like I had to move away because I couldn't trust anybody I couldn't walk down the street and see that fucking house I feel sad <laughs> Charlene's family used to be much closer, both literally and emotionally, before the homicide. It's just too difficult for some of them to live in Portage now, so they've moved away. And as you heard, it's difficult to trust people after something like this happens in your family. So even with a desire for things to go back to the way they were before, to a tight-knit family that would get together for every holiday, things will never be quite the same. 
Donna also wanted to make sure that we knew that Charlene wasn't always a fighter. She wasn't always a fighter. <laughs> um, she was actually very generous and caring. Like she cared so much for her kids and her grandkids were her life. Yeah. There was no nothing stronger than her love for her grandchildren, that's for sure. Tragically, less than a year before her murder, Charlene had beat breast cancer. She'd had a single mastectomy and was in the clear, and this was supposed to be a time for celebration. Sherry says Charlene was a firecracker and remembers her mom's laugh that had the power to make others smile. She says that Charlene wasn't always a fighter and she wouldn't hesitate to give someone the shirt off of her back. Charlene would give you a ride anywhere you needed to go, or if she couldn't drive herself, she'd make sure to help you find a ride to ensure you were able to get where you were going. Today, Sherry is reminded of her mother whenever payday rolls around, expecting her mother to call asking to borrow a little money. They all remember Charlene as being quite the character. But one thing was abundantly clear during our call with Sherry, Bobby, Donna, Debbie, and Shereem. Charlene was deeply loved by her family and is greatly missed every year that goes by without any answers. So as stated multiple times in this episode, this crime remains unsolved and no one person has been held responsible. What is known is that there were about 40 people at a party after 2 a.m. on November 1st, 2007. We know that in the early morning hours between 6 a.m. and 8 a.m. that the party had quieted down with only a handful of people remaining, including Charlene and her daughter Brittany. There were also others present as well. Then between 8 a.m. and 8.45 a.m., Charlene was discovered on the floor of the spare bedroom. She had been stabbed to death, and it was clear that a struggle had occurred. While not impossible, it is hard to believe that no one heard this attack. There must be people out there who know what happened, including the person responsible. Now is the time for them to come forward. If you have any information about this murder, we ask that you call the Portage La Prairie RCMP or Crime Stoppers. We'd like to thank Charlene's family for trusting us with telling this story. That's all we have for this episode of True North True Crime. We hope you'll share this episode to get Charlene's story out there and back into the spotlight. We wholeheartedly believe that this is a solvable case, and all it's going to take is the right person to finally make a phone call that they've been avoiding and getting that weight off of their shoulders. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you back soon with a brand new episode. Until then, stay safe, everyone. Stay safe. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.